Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Think about this. It's easy, really, to commit it to memory. But to know it by heart, that takes a lifetime. Because the Lord's Prayer is not words to be spoken alone. It is a model for prayer, but it's also a pathway for life. There is um, an interesting event in the book of Matthew, and it's Matthew chapter 14, I believe. It's a famous moment between Peter and Jesus, lots of famous moments between Peter and Jesus. This one has moments of glory and moments of crashing failure, which I guess also is the common scenario between Peter and Jesus. And this takes place just after the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to pick up at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Love the way they just kind of describe that, like, yeah, yeah, no problem for Jesus. Go out on ahead, I'll catch up with you. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I don't know exactly why Peter says the next thing he says. Maybe he really doesn't believe it could possibly be Jesus. Or it was a real test of faith. I don't know. We could imagine. But we do know that Peter blurts out, first thing on his mind, talk before you think, Peter. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said, verse 29. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind then died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. You might say, well, how does this get us back into the study of the Lord's Prayer? First of all, I want to underscore that although the disciples had been hearing this teaching, committing it to memory, probably, at this point, was one thing. Living it is a completely different thing. And this is a great analogy of that for not only Peter's life, but all of our lives. For some reason, Jesus chooses to keep the waves rolling. He chose to ask Peter to come out in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the storm. And the real thing I want you to see here is that little three-letter word in English, saw, when he saw, blepo is the word. And it literally means to observe or to focus on. Of course, they were aware of the wind and the storm. It was that Peter began to focus on them 
that made him lose focus on the one that was empowering him and to whom he was walking by faith. And that puts him in a position where he's under the waves crying out for salvation. Lord, save me. And I think that is the posture, that's the position from which most of us pray, an act of last resort. Once we're in the waves, once the needs are overwhelming, we find ourselves, and for most of us, our prayer is, Lord, save me. Save me from this financial situation, from this relational need, from this job issue, from this health issue. Lord, save me. That's our stance. It's not where God meant us to be. Jesus lovingly reaches down and grabs Peter and catches him up. But that's not God's intent. God doesn't want us for the rest of our life always to be under the waves needing for him to pull us up. He wants our faith to grow. It's about focusing on him. It's keeping focused on him that keeps us above those issues. What we see in the Lord's Prayer is that the needs are not the driving focus of the prayer. The driving focus is the relationship with God and who he calls us to be in that relationship. Let's put it up and let's look at the review just real quickly. This is where we've come so far. We've understand that prayer is relationship. That was the most radical part of Jesus' teaching on prayer. The Hebrew people saw prayer as something to a God whose name could not even be spoken. This is the thing that shakes up prayer most for, for the Hebrew people, that we can have a loving, intimate relationship with the Father. That changes everything. It's the context. Prayer is relationship. Second thing we saw is that prayer is about commitment. Jesus focuses first on the things that God wants to be the highest priority of our life. Why? Because it's what we're passionate about that determines what we're praying about. It also helps guide how we should pray about our needs. And he mentions three areas of commitment. Hallowed be your name, God's fame, making much of his name. A friend of mine, it's been many years since we've connected. We've connected over Facebook, and she's been listening to the sermons on the podcast. And Deborah is somewhat of a Hebrew scholar. And she said the phrase in Hebrew, hallowed be thy name, was a phrase that the Hebrew people understood to be a, a willingness to die. They needed to set themselves apart completely, and that meant potentially paying the ultimate death. And it became a phrase during the Maccabean period where the Hebrew people found strength to face martyrdom, and their common phrase was, hallowed be thy name. Wow. Everything we're about is for his fame, whether by life or by death, Paul says. May Christ be glorified in my body. Hallowed be thy name. Second, thy kingdom come. And we learn that's not just about the return of Christ as we think of it, but the coming of the kingdom, the extension of the reign of Christ through you and I. Because as a church, we have the keys to the kingdom. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Where Christ reigns, the kingdom is. Lord, your kingdom come in me and through me. And then third, God's will be done by habit. One thing to tune our prayers to the Father before we say what we want. We start with what God wants. Your will be done. Lord, ultimately, I want what you want. Prayer is relationship. Prayer is commitment. And we saw over two weeks, prayer is reliance. This is where it's about bringing our requests to God. But only once we're tuned to these priorities. It talks about four things that really summarize the whole of our needs as a human being in the context of living now and eternity, in the context of our relationships with one another and our relationships with God. 
Give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. So now we come to this final section. And this is not so much just closing comments to wrap it up. This is what we're crescendoing towards. One of the beautiful things about the Lord's Prayer is that it is the most concise statement of all things related to life, faith, religion. It's all in there. It's a great gift in a few short sentences. You know, there are very few things like that. We give Lincoln a lot of credit for the Gettysburg Address. He wrote the Gettysburg Address on a train to Gettysburg, and it was an era when great orators were the entertainment of the day. What they would do is come and keep your attention for two, three, sometimes four hours. Lincoln was not the keynote speaker at Gettysburg. There was a very famous orator who had prepared a presentation. Lincoln stood up and in about 90 seconds read this very brief statement which is thought of as one of the great speeches of all time. And the orator came to him and said, you humbled me. You said in a few brief sentences what I failed to say in many hours. Jesus one-ups Lincoln with this beautiful prayer that is about the whole of our life. One of the other beautiful things about it is that it it leans so well. And and I would dare suggest, I can't prove this, but I have an opinion that God was involved in the scoring of this beautiful prayer into a song because the traditional melody fits this as though they were made for one another. As it builds at the end of that song, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It builds, and that's perfect because I believe that's what's happening here in the prayer. It's not winding down. It's crescendoing to what matters most. And that's why, finally, when we talk about the Lord's Prayer, it's submission. Ultimately, we come, we know we're in relationship with a loving Father, We know that we live for his will and his glory. And in that, he wants to hear our requests, even though he already knows them, so we bring them to him. But we don't want to end there. We don't want our prayers just to end with us, elbow deep in the waves, crying, Lord, save me. (laughs) He wants us to be above it with him. And so as the prayer rises, our faith, who we are, our stature, rises to nobility. As we say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to break apart these pieces and look at them and explore the implications for you. The first thing that we are to submit ultimately to is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom. The first point in your notes, the big idea here is that prayer and life begins and ends with concern for the kingdom of God. This is the only aspect of the prayer that is essentially repeated from a different perspective. At the beginning, it's, we want your kingdom to come. And at the end, it's a reminder that it is indeed his kingdom, not ours. Yours is the kingdom. Two points under that big idea is that God reigns as sovereign of our lives. Remember, we talked about the kingdom not being a geographical area, but the Greek word for the kingdom being basileia, and that's the act of reigning. So if Christ reigns in your life, there's the kingdom. And our prayer is that someday Christ will come and reign and rule over the whole of humanity. But for now, where's the kingdom? It's, it's here. 
And he is sovereign over it. So ultimately, it's not about us. Even our requests aren't about us. It's all about him. That's the second point. Our requests must be in the context of God's higher purposes. I've brought these things to you, but I really know you have a higher purpose, and I submit to that. It's your kingdom. It's not mine. Second, yours is the power. The big idea here is that prayer recognizes that our own ability is limited while God's is without limit. Now, this is an awesome part of prayer because what it teaches us, first of all, is all power belongs to our king. That power is available to us as we seek his kingdom. And what that does is bring great confidence to our prayer. So in a sense, we're submitting to God's power, but that's a, that's a very positive thing. It's not a bad thing to submit to any of these things. It's the most positive, helpful, dare I say, self-serving thing we could possibly do <laughs> to put aside our desire to rule our lives because he's so much better at it. He's the true sovereign. To put aside our need to fix our lives because in the end, we don't have the power to do that, but God has all the power. And as I seek his kingdom, that power is available and God will work. That's a beautiful thing. I have a different video that we're going to close with today. Remember, I showed the Wizard of Oz about four weeks ago, coming in to the great and powerful Oz and bringing our requests to him and leaving terrified. Well, I was going to show the video of the Oz unmasked. You know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And no, I'm, I'm not a bad man. I'm just a pretty bad wizard. When we put our hopes in other sovereignties, whether it be ourselves or governments or people that claim to have some divine authority on their own, inevitably they will become unmasked. They will come out behind the special effects and we will see that they are powerless. Our God reigns sovereignly and has all the power. There is no fear that our requests are not heard. And as they are in tune to his will, are not gladly met. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And then finally, yours is the glory. Ultimately, prayer as in our lives seeks not so much our well-being. The ultimate end is that God will be glorified. How many times have you tried to trick God into making you a little more wealthy because you promised him you'll give him the glory for it? How often have we done that? Lord, please heal sister so-and-so, and we'll be careful to give you the glory. As though God's going to say, that's a deal I can't refuse. I could use some glory right now. You got it. It's not a deal. It's not like, if you do this, I'll give you glory. Give him glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. But through all those things, it's his glory. Prayer seeks God's glory in all things above all other concerns, period. Do you suppose that that idea worked its way into the followers of Jesus? I believe it did. One place where you can find it is in the book of Romans. I don't know if Paul ever heard Jesus speak on the Lord's Prayer. I suspect he did. He was part of the group of people, the Pharisees that were positioned against Jesus, but Scripture tells us the Pharisees were often there to hear Jesus' teaching. I like to think that Paul had heard this teaching. I certainly believe he heard it from the followers of Jesus afterwards, and I also believe that his life was shaped by the priorities of this prayer. 
Let me show you in Romans chapter 11, one place I think we can see a glimpse of it. Verse 33. This is the pause in Paul's letter that moves from theology, the great teachings of the gospel, and who Christ is and great doctrine that always marks the beginning of Paul's letter, into the application, which always marks the second part of Paul's letter, which basically says, how should we live based on this? And he goes into living the gospel. And this is the pause. And and in Romans, he marks the transition by a prayer of great doxology. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? How often have we attempted to counsel God about the needs in our life? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And then he says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says three things, and in them I hear the echo of the words of Jesus. For from him, yours is the kingdom. Through him, yours is the power. And to him, yours is the glory. And then he ends this doxology the same way our Christ taught us to pray forever and ever. Amen. Which takes us finally and ultimately to the fifth piece of what prayer is, as Jesus has taught us in his school of prayer. And that is that prayer is agreement. It's wrapped up in that little phrase that Paul uses in Romans and that Jesus closes out his lesson on prayer with forever. Amen. How many of you remember, I I shared a few months ago, my being a bit partial to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the word amen in the message. Who knows what it is? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think he really captures the beautiful, optimistic, and positive nature of this statement, which is nothing short of just saying, God, I'm with you. I'm committed to it. Oh, yes. So when we close in prayer, we're not just signing off. Order complete. Saying amen is not like hitting the enter button on your online purchase agreement. Amen is saying, God, I'm, I'm with you in all of this. See, I love that, that I celebrate that God has called me into his purposes for my life. And this prayer has tuned me to those things. It has reminded me that even my needs fit into those purposes of his kingdom. See? And are fulfilled by his power and ultimately serve to bring him the glory. <laughs> Amen. I'm for that. And I'm committed to it. That's prayer. So where do we go from here? I just have a simple suggestion. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Let us pray not just because it's a discipline we're called to. Let us pray because it deepens our relationship with the Father. Let us pray because God has made us his children. 
and he longs for us to be in communion with him. Let us pray because prayer lines our lives up to God's priorities. Let us pray because prayer reminds us that we are completely reliant on God. But let us pray because prayer celebrates that that God is completely trustworthy and has all the power. And let us pray so that in the end, we take no credit for ourselves, but know that we live for nothing else but for his glory, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Father, who art in heaven.